We are going to take a look, like I said earlier, actually we're going to take a break from our, our Titus series. We'll join back up with that next week. Today, because it's Pentecost Sunday, we're going to actually dive into Acts chapter 2. And instead of actually kind of pulling apart that, that scripture like we normally do with scripture, we're actually going to kind of pull apart and talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who he is and what he does in our lives, and we're going to look through the lens of Acts chapter 2 to find that out. So if you've got a Bible, you can follow along with me in Acts chapter 2. I put my glasses somewhere and can't find them, so if I stumble, please forgive me. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They is the disciples. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and it divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and they were astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native languages? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and and, uh, Phagria and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. And then I'm going to skip over to verse 27. This is Peter finishing up a sermon that he's preaching right after that. Now when they, the people there gathered, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness, and he continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let me pray for us. Father, what a privilege it is to hear your word. Son, what a privilege it is to proclaim your grace. Spirit, what a privilege it is to see you on display here. We ask that you would open our ears, open our eyes, remove the scales that often lie there, soften our hearts, or tune our hearts then to even hear the beautiful song of your grace. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would go about this work that you have promised to do. In the name of Jesus, amen. Just a couple of days ago, maybe a week or so ago, uh, we were all gathered in our house together and for whatever reason kind of looking out the front window, middle of the day, and Hampton, my son, said, look, there are two foxes 
just walking across the yard. And it was so cool, these two beautiful little animals that I rarely see and especially don't see in the middle of the day were just kind of trotting across our yard like it was no big deal. It was funny, there was just kind of this feeling of, uh, of, of being graced with this special presence, like, wow, these beautiful little animals just chose to hang out in my yard. When we lived uh, in Austin many years ago, uh, there were times where I would walk through our neighborhood and I would see a couple of long black Suburbans parked in front of one house, dark tinted windows, a couple of guys in dark suits hanging out by the Suburbans, and you thought, wow, what's going on here? Well, it turns out, actually, that it was former First Lady Laura Bush who was there in the neighborhood. She had a friend she was visiting, and it was the Secret Service who had driven her there and were there around with their little, you know, earpieces guarding her. And it made me feel so cool, like, wow, I'm somehow hosting somebody important, even though, of course, it wasn't at my house, but just being in the neighborhood made me feel special. Maybe you've had the experience of welcoming somebody special to your house. Maybe it's just somebody that you love and you haven't seen in a while, or maybe it's somebody even famous, and it makes you feel like, man, I feel pretty great that this person has given me the opportunity to experience their presence, that they're here in my house. Now, I guess, I have a guess, that if I asked you all, how would you feel if Jesus showed up at your door and wanted to come inside and hang out at your house today? You all would probably say, that would make me feel pretty amazing. That would make me feel pretty special that the Lord would want to show up at my house. But you know what the truth is? We heard Bonnie read this earlier, is that Jesus says actually something better has happened for all believers, is that the Holy Spirit has shown up not just at our houses, but in our hearts. If you belong to Christ by faith, if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. It is an astounding truth. It is an amazing thing to be able to proclaim that God the Spirit dwells both among us as a church and in us individually. We have hosting today and in us every day the most important special person that we could ever host. We're going to just dive into that concept a little bit this morning. We're going to talk about what it means that God would set up shop in and among us that he would be present with us, and what that does to us. And we're going to look at four different ways, kind of four evidences, actually, of the Spirit's presence in a Christian's life and in the church's life as well. And here are those four things that we're going to look at. Spirit-inspired repentance is the first thing, and Spirit-saturated worship, Spirit-informed identity, and Spirit-empowered mission. Okay? So repentance worship, identity, mission. That's what we'll look at today. Let's look first at repentance. You know, the flow of this passage, I left out a big chunk, but the flow of this passage basically goes like this. The Holy Spirit shows up and does something amazing. Everyone is utterly confused by it, so they ask the disciples, what in the world is going on? Peter then preaches a sermon about it, and then at the end of that sermon, they all ask another question. Okay, if that's true, and the content of his sermon basically is, 
What you're seeing here is evidence that the world has changed. Jesus has come and changed everything, and this movement of the Spirit, spirit is great evidence of that. And he preaches this incredible sermon about who Jesus is and what he's done for his people. And all of the people afterwards ask this big question, okay, Peter, if that's all true, what should we do about it? That is a pretty good question. (laughs) In fact, it's really the response that we should all have upon hearing the gospel. If that's true, what do I need to do? And the first word out of Peter's mouth is repent. Repent. Repentance is the thing that Peter says follows the proclamation of the gospel and the movement of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just kind of tie those knots together a little bit, right? Because we're at the end of Peter's sermon, and he's talking to people who have asked, what should we do? So how is the Spirit involved? Well, we've got to actually track backward to see what happened first. The Holy Spirit showed up at Pentecost, and it's a double miracle We have men who don't know how to speak Mesopotamian speaking it, and other people who don't know how to hear Mesopotamian hearing it. So you have a miracle of speech and a miracle of hearing, and the Spirit is actually doing all of that together. And the response then from the people upon seeing the movement of the Spirit is repentance. In fact, we end that chapter with 3,000 people being saved. You know, this actually has precedent in that passage that Bonnie read from us earlier. Jesus says, not only is it going to be better for you when the Spirit comes, but here's what the Spirit's going to do. He is going to convict the world of sin. And I think maybe Jesus is even talking especially about what's going to happen here in Acts 2 and Pentecost, because that's exactly what the Spirit does. When the Spirit shows up, there is conviction. When the Spirit shows up, hearts are changed. When the Spirit shows up, there are people who are hardened against Jesus whose hearts are softened and they are able to turn to Him. So that's the Spirit's role in convicting us of our sin in ways that lead to conversion, right? For first-time conviction of sin, the Spirit is hugely important there, but it doesn't stop with conversion. Because what happens after that? Peter says not only repent, but believe and receive the Spirit that you might have that filling Spirit all of the time in your life. And so the Spirit's job continues in the life of the Christian to continually convict us of sin. Now let me be really clear with my words here. When I say convict of sin, I'm not using it in the kind of language that we would say a convicted thief. This is not condemning language. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ. In fact, the Spirit's role is just the opposite. But what the Spirit does do in the Christian's heart is to open our eyes that we might see more clearly who we still really are. I read a story the other day about uh, Pastor Matt Chandler in Dallas tells a story about coming home one day, and many of us, probably if we've got little kids, have had this same story in our lives. He comes home and he sees his son uh, sitting down and playing an Xbox game and not actually doing the chore that he had given his son to do, which was vacuuming the house. So he says, son, you forgot to vacuum the house. Let's get on that. Son goes, oh yeah, sorry dad, forgot to vacuum the house, turns off his game, hops up, grabs the vacuum cleaner, turns it on for about 45 seconds, and then goes back to his game. To which the dad says, 
Did you vacuum the whole house? Yeah, Dad. Yeah, vacuum the whole house, right? In 45 seconds. Yeah, totally. So the dad, like probably many of us have done, says, all right, we're going to do a little tour. We're going to take a, a floor-gazing tour, you know, here of the house just to see if everything's picked up. And, of course, you know, within about four or five seconds, they come upon a corner where he said there looked like somebody had taken an entire bag of goldfish and intentionally dumped them out and then stomped on them and spread them around on the floor. And he says, it doesn't really look like you cleaned up here. And the son, of course, says, ooh, I didn't see that. That's the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, actually, is to kind of take us on a little tour of our hearts and say, hey, there's like a big pile of crushed up goldfish right over here in this corner, and there's an ants are going to come, and it's going to be bad news, and you left some garbage also over here, and it's going to stink in a few days. The Holy Spirit does that for us because he loves us, because he actually wants our hearts to be clean. He takes us around, and he shows us the dirty places. Paul Tripp tells a story of a friend of his who is blind, who makes these beautiful pins, wooden pins, and he turns them on a lathe, and he said, you know, they're the most exquisite, beautiful craftsmanship you've ever seen. And he goes on to talk more about his friend and just how much he can do. He said, you know, the list of things that this guy cannot do because he's blind is so, so small. But you know what's at the top of that list? C. Blind people know the one thing that is most true to them is that they cannot see. But the problem with spiritual blindness is that we are oftentimes blind even to our own blindness. We can't see that we can't see, and we need the Holy Spirit to turn the lights on. We need the Holy Spirit to shine the light into our hearts so that we can see the places that we're blind to. That is his loving job, to lead us into repentance so that we might proclaim like David in the Psalms says, search me and know me. See if there's any grievous way in me. Lead me to repentance. That's the Spirit's job. Secondly, evidence of a Spirit-filled life is Spirit-saturated worship. I think sometimes when we read a passage like Acts 2, when we read through the Bible and we see big, miraculous things happening, we oftentimes ask what is a very natural question, which is, are these big, miraculous things still happening? And the answer to that is yes and no. Let's take the no first. When we look through the Bible and you look at it as a whole, what you actually find is that these big, miraculous things happen probably a lot less often than you think at first because they happen sporadically and to particular people. For instance, you have a big gap between what God does in the flood in Genesis 6 and how God speaks to Abraham in Genesis 12. Then you have another big gap kind of after he's talking to the patriarchs of about 500 years of silence where Israel is in bondage. Then this huge explosion of God's kind of mighty acts in the plagues and in the exodus. And then another time of silence. Then he speaks particularly through the prophets, but nobody listens. And then another long time of silence until we get to the opening of the New Testament in the Messianic age where we see Jesus and he comes on the scene and everything changes. 
And what we have here in Acts chapter 2 is still in that particular age, the Spirit kind of putting His stamp of approval on it to show everybody Jesus has done something that nobody else could do, and the world has changed because of it. And so, do these kind of things that happened in Pentecost, do these kind of things that often happened through the apostles, do they still happen regularly in the life of the church? I think the answer is generally no. But there is also a really big yes. Because oftentimes I think we, we, we kind of put the Holy Spirit in a little box and we say, all right, your job is to either do really big kind of miraculous things, and if you're not doing those things, then your next job is to kind of be the emotional cheerleader for everybody, right? That's kind of the box we've put the Holy Spirit in is that the Holy Spirit is the one who kind of works us all up emotionally and gets us excited about stuff. There's a satirical Christian website called the Babylon Bee. Maybe some of you have seen this. And one of the headlines uh, not too long ago was, uh, Holy Spirit unable to move when church smoke machine breaks. Sometimes we can kind of convince ourselves into thinking that, like, well, the Spirit's job is to kind of do the emotional stuff, and if the emotional stuff isn't present, then I guess the Spirit's not present. And of course, our emotions are a big part of who we are. We're whole people, intellectually, physically, emotionally, and the Spirit uh, really is engaged in all of those things, but we can't put Him in that small of a box. He's actually much, much, much more involved in our worship life. Think about three really big pieces of, of what we think of as the means of grace, the ways by which God reveals Himself to us, His Word, His sacraments, prayer. The Holy Spirit is all over God's Word, we oftentimes can also think, you know, man, it sure would be amazing if I would have lived in the first century, and I would have got to see these cool things, and I would have been able to see the disciples speaking in these different languages. It would have been overwhelming, wouldn't it? But guess what? The folks in the first century, they would look at us and say, wait a minute, you have a Bible? You have literally God's words written down, and it's sitting by your bed, and you can open it up and read it anytime you want? They would be so jealous of us because we have the revelation of God in our hands. I can hold it. I can take it with me. I can open it up, and I can know what God wants me to know about him. And this is the Spirit's job. He is totally involved in that. I had a seminary professor say that the Holy Spirit is involved on both ends of the fax machine. If you're under 30, a fax machine is uh, so people used to work in offices, and when they wanted to send a document from one office to another, they'd put it in a fax machine. It's kind of like an email attachment, just a lot harder, and just with some paper that curls up really easily. But the fax machine is a communication device, and the Holy Spirit works in the writing and the receiving of God's Word, right? He's at the beginning of the writing of Scripture, Peter tells us in 2 Peter that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote the words of God. So he's on that side of the sending, the inspiration of the Scriptures, but sometimes we forget he's on the other side too, is that we need the Holy Spirit to be at work when we open up God's Word if we want anything to happen. If we want to understand the words of the eternal Creator and Lord of all things, we actually need the Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives. You heard me pray it before I started. Lord, we need you to open our eyes. We need you to unstop our ears. We need you to soften our hard hearts so that we can receive this word. The Holy Spirit gives us God's word. 
He's also involved in the sacraments. Every week we come and we gather around the Lord's table, and we know in a mysterious way that I don't think I'll ever get my hands completely around, that the Spirit is actually present with us when we celebrate the supper, when we taste that little taste of what is to come. When we remember the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, it changes our souls. It feeds us spiritually, and the Holy Spirit is a big part of that. How about prayer? Well, the Holy Spirit, of course, has a huge role in prayer. In Romans 8, we read that we offer prayers to God, and the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. See, the idea is this, is that we pray, and our prayers aren't really what they should be, so the Holy Spirit interprets those prayers and gives them to the Father in the way that we should have prayed them to begin with. Isn't that beautiful? The Holy Spirit as a wonderful prayer interpreter. I read a story the other day about the first meeting between the the Spanish explorer Cortez and the Aztec emperor, um, uh, what's his name? What's his name? Come on, you guys know this. I've got it written down. I just blanked on his name. Uh, Montezuma. There we go. Aztec Emperor Montezuma, Spanish explorer Cortez, and neither one of them spoke each other's language, right? Cortez spoke Spanish. Montezuma spoke Aztec, but they each had interpreters with them, and Cortez had brought an interpreter that spoke Spanish and Mayan, And uh, Montezuma had an interpreter who spoke Aztec and Mayan, so they would go from Spanish to Mayan to Mayan to Aztec, and then from Aztec to Mayan to Mayan to Spanish. Well, you can guess there's probably just a little bit lost in translation when four people are involved in one little communication process. In fact, many historians would say that conversation and what was lost in that conversation is probably what ended up having things in not so well for Montezuma and the Aztec Empire. Well, the Holy Spirit is just the opposite of that, okay? He's the interpreter that not only doesn't lose anything in interpretation, he gains in interpretation. He presents to the Father what was not there to begin with. What we should have prayed, he gives anyway. So the Holy Spirit empowers our prayer life. The Anglican tradition, I think, has a beautiful kind of description in many ways of this, of three kind of chords of a string together, of the Word, the sacrament, and the Spirit. I love that. But I will say maybe it's even selling the Holy Spirit a little bit short because he's involved in the other two as well. He's deeply involved in the production and reception of God's Word, in the way that we engage in his sacraments, in the way even that we pray. So that's spirit Uh, saturated worship. Here's the third thing, is spirit-informed identity. Now, I'm going to read you uh, verse 36 from Acts 2 that I didn't read earlier. Just listen here. So, Peter is talking. He's preaching. And this is what he says of the people who are gathered around. Verse 36, if I can find it without my glasses. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, meaning Jesus, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Boy, Peter doesn't pull any punches, does he? He looks out at his crowd and he says, you are responsible for the death of Jesus. You know, it's probably doubtful 
that any of the people that were gathered there for Pentecost actually nailed the nails into Jesus' hands and feet. But it's actually probably likely that many who were gathered there were also gathered at his trial, shouting, crucify him, keep Barabbas, or give us Barabbas, keep Jesus, give us the murderer, give us the thieves, keep Jesus, and crucify him. But then what does Peter say in verse 39? He said, this promise is for you. (laughs) Isn't that unbelievable? He looks out at the people and he says, you are the ones who are responsible for killing the Lord of life. And this promise of his grace and of the presence of his spirit is for you and your children and your grandchildren. What incredible grace our God gives us. And of course, the truth that we have to own in our hearts is even though we weren't the ones who nailed the nails into his hands and feet, even though we weren't there to shout crucify him, we have done so many times in our hearts, right? We sing that song, it it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. It is our sin that put Jesus on the cross and he looks at us and says the same thing. This promise of grace and mercy and forgiveness and the presence of the Spirit in your life is for you. Paul says again in Romans 8 that one of the Spirit's jobs is to declare with our spirit that we are sons of God, to actually join in with our spirit and say the words that are so oftentimes hard even for us to say is that we are children of God. He proclaims our identity even when it's hard for us to proclaim our identity. Though we are sinful beyond measure, we have been lavished with the grace of God. We have been made heirs to his throne. We have been given the presence of his spirit. That is the identity that we have. And finally, here's the fourth evidence of a spirit-filled life, and it is spirit-empowered mission. Let's just kind of look back at that first bit of Acts 2. That movement of the Spirit in Pentecost. I don't know if you heard when I was reading it or saw in your Bible or on the screen just how many times this idea of foreign languages and tongues was mentioned. It was over and over and over. The disciples were speaking in foreign tongues. The people were hearing in their foreign tongues. They said, how is this that we hear it in our own tongues? And they finally say, how is it that we hear the works of God spoken in our own languages? Let's just move backward, pin pin that for just a second, go back to the Old Testament. Over and over in the Old Testament, the prophets are saying something repeated is that Israel's job is to be a holy nation so that they might be a priesthood of, of, of a priestly nation to proclaim the excellencies of God to the rest of the world. So that the entirety of the world would actually come to know who God is. So that the whole world would be filled with God's glory. So that every tongue would confess that God is Lord and King. We pick up on that in the New Testament as well, and Paul tells us that in Philippians 2, that every tongue would confess and every knee would bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the goal, is that everybody in the world would be speaking the wonderful glories of who God is in their own language. 
Jesus tells his disciples this in Matthew 28 when he sends them. He says, go and, and make disciples, baptizing them, right, and, uh, and, and showing them how to live and do so starting here in Jerusalem and in Judea and then to the ends of the earth. We pick up on the same thing at the end of chapter 2 in Acts here when Peter says this. This promise is for you and your children and your grandchildren and all those who are far off. <coughs> so the idea is now and always has been that the whole world is supposed to come to know who God is. That each culture and language and tribe and time and place takes on that message of the gospel and takes it to heart and sees it take root in their culture and their language and their time. You see what's going on here in Acts chapter 2? We're getting a glimpse of it. We're getting a glimpse and a picture of the way it's supposed to be. That people are hearing of the mighty works of God in their own languages, in their own tongues. This is the mission of God, and it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we're getting this beautiful burst of it right here in Acts chapter 2, but it's also just a little preview for us of the activity that the Holy Spirit is going to be about for the next 2,000 years and beyond. Until every tongue confesses and every knee bows, the Spirit is at work doing this work. You want some more evidence of that? Look around. Because the person next to you lives in New Braunfels, Texas, 2,000 or more years and a continent away from where this was happening. Friends, the Holy Spirit has done his job because we're here <laughs> We are speaking the glories of God in our foreign, odd language. The fact that we're gathered speaking English, singing God's praises, is evidence that the Spirit has been at work. And it's evidence that He's going to continue to be at work. Let me close just with simple application. Using that same question that the crowd asked Peter. Okay, if all of this is true, what do we do? Well, simply this, thank the Holy Spirit. I know for myself personally, this week has been really beneficial for me studying this because it's reminded me to thank the Spirit particularly for his work in the world. Because if you have ever been convinced of your own sin, maybe if somebody you love, a friend or your spouse has come to you and said, hey, can we talk about this in your life? If that's ever happened to you, thank the Holy Spirit He's at work. That's his job. If you have ever opened up God's word and understood it, thank the Holy Spirit because he's doing his job. If you have ever struggled with your own sin and then realized the incredible identity you have in Christ and proclaimed that, and friends, I hope you have every day, then thank the Spirit because he's the one that's enabled you to do that. And if you are sitting here worshiping in as strange of a place as New Braunfels, Texas in 2021. Thank the Spirit. He has done his job. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for your promised presence. Thank you for the work that you're about in this world and in our hearts. Thank you for the things that we can't understand, and thank you for the things that are so plain to us that we fail to understand them. Thank you for the mystery of your work 
thank you for the beauty of what you are doing in our hearts, in our lives, in this church and in your church globally and historically. We pray that you would continue. Just as Jesus says, I'm going away and the Spirit is coming, we pray, Spirit, that you would continue to be at work until Jesus returns. We pray it in his name. Amen.